Second Peter, and we're going to begin a new series on this book this morning. It's uh, toward the back of the New Testament there. Paul's letters by convention are named based on the original recipients. So his letters are called Romans or Colossians because he wrote a letter to the Roman church, to the church in a city called Colossae. Uh, one of his letters is called Titus because he wrote it to a ministry associate by the name of Titus. But the other letters in the New Testament that are not written by Paul, like First and Second Peter or James or Second John, are by convention labeled, named after their human author. So last uh, year we spent uh, four or five months studying First Peter, and now we're going to follow that up by looking at Second Peter. And usually... When we start a new book study, I'll do the uh, kind of a, get up in a Bible study helicopter and we'll survey the whole book, do a s- synthesis of it, and talk about some background issues and things you want to know. But I'm going to wait a week for that. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll do our kind of introduction to the book. But I wanted to jump right into the first verse of Second Peter today because it meshes so well with what we were thinking about last week. So. We'll actually focus on Second Peter one one this morning, but as always, let's pray that the Holy Spirit who inspired this text, the Holy Spirit who inspired this text, might illumine it to us as believers, that we might understand it, believe it, and apply it to our lives. Please don't let the study of the Word, don't let the study of the Word of God make you a better critic of everybody else. Let it be uh, something God uses to do some fine tuning on your own uh, priorities and uh, decisions. And I feel like uh, sometimes I get up here and I step all over people's toes, which isn't always unintentional, by the way. But I, I've had my toes stepped on all week as I've prepared. So trust me, uh, this is uh, therapeutic for all of us, including certainly me too. So let's pray for our teachability, our troops, peace officers, firefighters, and then there's uh, there's Bonnie Foreman's cousin uh, Michael, who uh, whose head was badly damaged in a, a car wreck several months ago now. And I just wanted to show that picture to kind of put a, uh, a photograph in our minds as we pray for Michael there on that prayer list. Okay, so let's pray for teachability and troops today. And uh, Danny, if you would uh, pray for us in that direction. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. I always seem to teach so much better after he prays for me for some reason. I'm not sure how that works exactly. Let's uh, start with a new acronym this morning. ATWUs is uh, Abstract Thought Warmer Uppers. Here's some Abstract Thought Warmer Uppers. Uh, why Why do eagles often build their nests on the roofs of churches? Because they are birds of prey. What is the Christian, uh, Job Patton, what is the Christian real estate agent's favorite Bible passage? The Great Commission. What is the Christian mathematician's favorite formula? I love this one. One cross plus three nails equals four given. Boom. That's the gospel. And finally, if the Apostle Peter, the human author of First and Second Peter, we're alive today. Every person in the world, including uh, uh, Richard Dawkins and these, those kind of people, Sam Harris, every person in the world would consider him amazing because he, Peter, would be a little over 2,000 years old. 
So if he was alive today, we're going to talk about the fact that the essential basis for Christian unity is unity in the biblical basics of the Christian faith. And let's start by reading uh, 2 Peter 1, uh, verses 1 through 11, but we're going to focus on verse 1 this morning. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more certain to demonstrate his calling and choosing of you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Go back to verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle Jesus Christ to, that is writing this letter under inspiration to those who received uh, faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um this was a convention in the first century um, when people would write in the first century A.D. in the Western world when they would write letters, emails, texts, or tweets. They always began with the, their name. The writer would always begin with his or her name. Now today, if you write a letter or kind of a formal email, if Ben writes a letter to an associate across the state, uh, he wouldn't put Ben to the associate across the state. He would say uh, uh, Andrew or, or Sharon or whatever her name is first and then tell Sharon or Andrew what Ben wants that person to know and then at the end say, you know, your friend or sincerely uh, Ben. You know, we've kind of, the writer puts their name at the end. But in, in first century of uh, following not a, Descriptive, but a prescriptive, uh, a, a descriptive. He's describing what they did in the first century, not prescribing it. Uh, he just identifies himself, and he identifies himself in an interesting way. He uses his his name and his nickname. Now, Simon is a word that means listener, and the first time that Jesus interacted with Simon in John chapter one, Jesus looks him in the eye and says, "Hey, basically, they ca- they call you listener. Now, we all know you're not a very good listener." 
So we're going to call you Rocky because you're rough around the edges. And when I think of Rocky, I think of the movie, the boxer Rocky, you know, but he's basically uh, nicknamed Peter Petros because he was rough around the edges. Now realize the the uh, the guy in the Gospels that kind of shot first and asked questions later, who spoke first and dealt with the fallout later, uh, that he did that so often. This is 30 years later. This is 35 years later. This guy is one of the elder statesmen of the church. He has grown um, magnificently spiritually. This book is all about your potential as a Christian to grow, and he doesn't really say, hey, look at me, this is what I did, but you pick it up. So don't make the error of thinking this is the guy, the big fisherman who was probably 30 in the Gospels. This is a guy who's 65, and I can relate to that. And uh, I'm actually going to turn 65 in March if I make it. So pray for me. And I don't like the word elderly, just so you'll know. So. Senior citizen, I'm getting used to, but I mean, and that's, that was a tough, tough pill to swallow, Dustin. I'll tell you what. But yeah, so Simon's his name. Peter's his nickname. And it reminds us that, that the Lord had a sense of humor. I think he's looking at this guy with a big smile on his face and saying, Hey, they call you listener. We're going to call you Rocky and we're going to make you a project, but I'm going to use you as one of the, the cornerstones or one of the parts of the, uh, foundational aspects of the church, although he's not the foundation of the church. So Peter was one of the 12 apostles. He was a leader among equals by the force of his personality. He was not the first pope. I mean, for crying out loud, he he had a mother-in-law, which tells you what. When you get married, a good thing happens and a bad thing happens. You know, now, I had like the world's greatest mother-in-law. And when I decided to drop out of dental school with my eye problem and God had changed my heart, it took my wife a year to get a hold of that. And once he gave her the green light, and I got some medical information from an ophthalmologist and full uh, workup at the University of Texas Medical Center, Houston, on my eyes. And she said, uh, I wish you were in law school, but in dental school, you're going to kill somebody, you know, because you have no three-dimensional depth perception up close. And I said, yeah, I kind of noticed that when it's taking me three hours to do first-class amalgam, you know, and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, my mother-in-law, my dad... Uh, when I tried to call him and tell him I dropped out with the medical issue to, as cover, you know, it wasn't just I wanted to go to seminary, although it's all part of that. I wasn't sure he'd ever talk to me again. It took him a while. He always thought I'd go back and finish dental school, you know, but I'm, I'm not going back. <laughs> it's too late. Uh, it was a good thing. My vision's so bad now I couldn't even find somebody's mouth, much less their third molar. I mean, it's really bad up close, but, um, uh, my, and my mother, of course, couldn't act like she understood because it, it offended my dad. So that side of the family was freaked out for a long time. But my mother-in-law was was totally accepting of it. Dot, you know, you you, you knew her. And so anyway, Peter had a mother-in-law, which means he was married, right? Blanche, that's the way that thing works. So he's not the first pope, and he's not the foundation of the church. You know, in, in Matthew 16, after the ministry, as far as numbers, is going south because the le- Jewish leaders have said Jesus is a satanically possessed false prophet. And I think the average Jewish person said, well, he's not that bad, but he can't be the Messiah because our guys wouldn't, our leaders wouldn't miss it that bad. Jesus takes the 12 out of town to uh, Caesarea Philippi outside of Jewish territory. And uh, he basically says, okay, I got two questions for you. What's the Gallup poll saying now? Who do people say that I am? after the Jewish leaders have said, I'm a satanically possessed false prophet. And you know what? The Gallup poll still got a lot of good responses. 
Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah. None of them are saying you're a bad guy. But you know what? That's not good enough. Right? And so that's question one. What's the Gallup poll saying? Well, they, they don't buy the party line, but they don't think you're the Messiah either. And so he looks at them and says, who do you say that I am? And that's plural in the Greek. In Oklahoma, we've got y'all, which is singular, and all y'all, which is plural. In that second question, he says, who do all y'all say I am now that the Jewish leaders have rejected me? And you know they're going to have me killed now, right? I can't be a false prophet and, and be allowed to live. And, what, and Peter, by the force of his personality, what does he say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're, you're the one in Psalm 2. You're the one in Psalm 10. You're the one in Zechariah 12. You're the one in Isaiah 53. You're the Christ. You're the Savior. You're the issue and the issuer of eternal life. So Jesus says, play on words. Your name is Rocky, right? You're Petros. And yet Petros has said something that's the Petra, different gender. And that is going to be the foundation of my church. Uh, not Peter Petros, but what Peter said. What did Peter say? What's what's the absolute foundational truth of the Christian church? That Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That he's the issue and the issue of eternal life. They lived a perfectly righteous life, the God-man Savior, that he died on the sins, died on the cross for the sins of the world, rose again, and everyone who trusts in him is saved by God's grace. So that's what Peter did. Peter's not the foundation of the church. Uh, he's not the first pope, but he was a powerful uh, messenger of God, flawed and yet and finite, and yet God uses all kinds of flawed raw material to accomplish his purpose. Now keep going. He identifies himself as a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now we're too comfortable with texts like these, and we don't get the initial impact. I call this an oxymoronic title. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Um, oxymoron is uh, something that is seemingly inherently contradictory, kind of like government efficiency. There ain't no such thing. Minor concussion. I've had several concussions because baseballs have hit my cranium, either as a batter or as a pitcher, after the ball comes back at you. And... Um, the first one I had, I was in a Pony League baseball in Birmingham, Alabama, and they took me to the hospital, and the doctor said, "He, your son has a mild concussion. And I thought, a mild concussion? No problem. And then I said, what's a concussion? They said, brain bruise. I thought, ain't no such thing as a minor brain bruise, the way I describe it, you know. So, yeah, he calls himself a bondservant, a doulos in the original, the lowest form of servitude. You're connected to your master for your entire life. It's not indentured servitude. It's the lowest form of servitude. And yet he also calls himself an apostle, capital A, which is the highest ranking human being in the New Testament church. An apostle, the 12 apostles, are like five-star generals under the commander-in-chief, who's not the Vatican or the Southern Baptist Convention or Dallas Seminary, but the Lord Jesus Christ. So this, we don't appreciate the fact that this guy who's a five-star general is saying he's also a bondservant. And here's the thing. All true Christian leadership is servant leadership. It's not just supervisory complaining about everybody else's stuff. 
It's you being willing to get down on your hands and knees and do whatever needs to be done. Our Lord Jesus Christ, just before he's going to be arrested and brutalized, says, washes the other guy's feet. Nobody else would do that because they'd lose social status if they're washing people's feet because that's a slave's job. And Jesus said, I gave you an example. I don't think that's an ordinance. I think that's an example. Uh, there's nothing that uh, should be off uh, the list for Christian leaders to do to help and for any of us. So uh, we all love servanthood until somebody actually treats us like one. And then we get very resentful. And uh, Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Peter is the human author. We believe in the doctrine of inspiration. God, the Holy Spirit, superintended uniquely the human authors of Scripture such that they composed and recorded without any error the exact message God wanted in the words of the original manuscript as timeless Scripture. So Simon Peter is the human author. God, the Holy Spirit, is the divine author. He's both a five-star general and a servant leader. Uh, and he's writing this letter originally. It's gnomic scripture, so it's, it's been preserved, and it, it's the word of God written to us too. But he's writing originally to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. The word faith is the word pistis in the Greek. The verb is pistuo, active receptive trust, right? And the term there, that noun, can be subjective in meaning, referring to Say, the personal act of believing in Christ, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become sons of God of those who believe on his name. So I could say, when I was nine years old in the back row of a Southern Baptist revival in Opelika, Florida, I put my faith in Christ. That's a subjective use of that word for faith. However, here, the word faith, pistis, is objective, referring to the specific, to the specific content of our faith. Example, TBF, along with many of the churches in our community, certainly stands for the essentials of the faith, for the essentials of the Christian faith. Uh, we'll talk about this a bit next week when we talk about background for Second Peter. But Second Peter and Jude are like uh, fraternal twins. Okay, They're very similar, dealing with the same basic issues. And uh, it's obvious one had read the other. There's, there's a discussion about who came first. You know, the uh, chicken or the egg, Jude was written first, or Second Peter will mention that in passing. But notice, in Jude, verse 3, he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about one sub- subject, just generally salvation, I felt the need, based on certain heresies that are coming through the pike, to write to you in this letter we call Jude, and this is Jesus' half-brother Judas, by the way, is writing this, uh, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. That's the way it's used in Second Peter 2. They're talking about the same basic thing. Let's contend for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Uh, the same faith as far as its content. I want you to contend earnestly for the faith. The faith or just faith can refer to the content that we believe doctrinally and morally as Christians. The essence of our Christian uh, Christianity. Uh, Paul talks about the same kind of thing, but he often uses the word uh, the truth as a synonym for the faith, for that which we believe, the essential core of our doctrinal and moral uh, convictions as Christians. In 1 Timothy, writing to the pastor of the uh, Ephesus Bible Fellowship, you know, Timothy pastored Ephesus Bible Fellowship, right? 
Uh, some think it was First Baptist Church of Ephesus, but that's not possible. You know, uh, who knows? Uh, there's a Christian church in Ephesus. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself or herself. Uh, that's generic. Uh, in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And you know what Paul thought the church of the living God should be? The uh, good ship lollipop where the pastor's the cruise director and it's all about fun, fun, fun. You know, I like coming to church. I've always liked coming to church. I came to church before I got paid for coming to church. I've always enjoyed coming to church. Uh, some weeks is more fun than others. But uh, according to this part of the Word of God, the church, both the capital C uh, universal church expressed in the local church, visible churches, it's supposed to be the pillar and support of the truth, of the faith. They're talking about the same thing here. And so Peter and his readers, and you all who are regenerate believers here today, uh, held to the same Christian faith, the same doctrinal and moral convictions. Now, Peter was special. He's an apostle, right, Linda? He's a five-star general. He also was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Apostles were all that, of course. Uh, and when you read this book and First Peter, you realize his readers had never seen Jesus. Peter had, but his readers, the original readers, had not seen Jesus. They weren't eyewitnesses. They were going on the apostolic testimony. And so, in many ways, we're kind of in their shoes, aren't we? Now, let's just finish. I want to talk about what the faith is for the rest of this morning. But let's finish the verse 1. So he says, uh, identifies himself, Simon Peter. Describes himself, I'm a servant leader of Jesus Christ and his church. Writing this under inspiration of those who have the same faith as I have. And all this is by, by means of, consistent with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, and it says, righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Jason, in English, you might think he could be saying, uh, this righteousness is from God, from our God, let's make that God the Father, and from our Savior, second person of Trinity, Jesus. But in fact, the syntax in the original language in this statement, and also in another statement, Titus 2.13, is such that the writer, Peter, is affirming that the, na- the noun God here and the noun Savior must clay refer to Jesus in this context, okay? We're not talking about God the Father. Is God the Father righteous? Yeah. If you read it that way, are you wrong? No, but you're not, you're missing the point. The point here is, Caroline, he's going out of his way to emphasize that Jesus is both God, full deity, and the Savior, the active uh, agent of salvation because he makes the atonement and he's resurrected from the dead. Uh, This is very important because you know, preachers can be tricky. There are preachers who get in a pulpit nowadays and say, well, of course I believe Jesus is divine. And for many of you, that you think, well, he, he believes Jesus is deity. Uh, to say he's divine for many people today, including in the pulpit, means he was a really godly guy. He's just a godly person, okay? The Bible and Jesus himself will not allow you to say that. Uh, I think it's, I remember when Angie got back from Uganda, she said, I'm so glad that, you know, we have some of these uh, mnemonic devices to remember uh, how we can defend key truths. And I always like to say, uh, if you're trying to think through the full deity of Christ or defend it when people say, I don't believe that, where do you go in the Bible? Well, 
I like to think of Jesus Christ 1-2, because it's easy to remember, right? JC 1-2, right, Kyleen? So JC 1-2 stands for John 1, Colossians 2. What does John 1 say? In the beginning was the Word, that's the title for Jesus, and the Word was with God the Father, and the Word was God, was deity. That's a direct statement that Jesus is God. Okay, we just saw one here too, but let's talk about easy ones to remember. Jesus Christ 1-2, Colossians 2. Colossians 2 says, In Jesus all the fullness of deity, not that he was a godly human being, all the fullness of deity dwells in godly form. That's a mind blower. That's a miracle. I have no idea how the second person of the Trinity takes on humanity without ceasing to be deity, but that's what he claimed to be. That's what the New Testament says he is. Now, the problem with Jesus Christ 1-2 John 1, Colossians 2, Sharon, the problem with that is Jesus didn't say that. And you'll have, I've had people retort that to me. Well, that's fine that John apparently thought Jesus was God in, in, in the Gospel of John. And Paul apparently thought Jesus was God in Colossians. But Jesus never claimed to be God. You realize that? Calls himself Son of Man a lot of times. Son of Man's a title for deity, Daniel 7, 13, but they don't know that. They think the title Son of Man doesn't mean deity. But, what are you going to do with that? Ken, what are you going to do? And somebody says, well, the, the New Testament may say Jesus was God, but they misunderstood him. I like to think, I like to think of Jesus holding up an 8 by 10 glossy picture of himself, because that reminds me, Robbie, of 8 and 10. And then I think of John 8 and John 10. Before Abraham was, I am, ego me, which is a title that equates to the word for God in the Old Testament. That's John 8, 58. What does the next verse say? And the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders, took up stones to stone him. Why would they be so offended when Jesus said, before Abraham was, he lived in about 2000 B.C., Abraham, I am, because he's claiming to be God in human form. And so that's blasphemy in their minds. They're going to stone him. That's John 8. He's holding up an 8 by 10 picture of himself. Right, Stan? That's John 8. John 10. I and the Father are one. And the syntax there, syntax is, I hated diagramming sentences all the way through high school. And then in college, I found out at a Bible study, if you diagram sentences in the Bible, you actually can figure out what it means. And I fell in love with grammar. I mean, Greek grammar, Hebrew grammar. Uh, John 10.30, I and the Father are one. The syntax there does not permit you to take that as I and the Father are one and the same person but I and the Father are one of the same essence. I am deity just as much as God the Father is deity. And what does the next verse say? They took up stones to stone him. Why are they always trying to stone Jesus? Because he's claiming to be God. He believed he was God. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord. That's all he's giving you, okay? So when somebody wants to blow smoke at you and say, well, I think he was a good religious teacher and nothing more than the New Testament misunderstood him, you can't let him off the hook there, okay? Because that ain't possible. Okay, so what exactly is this faith of the truth that the church is supposed to be the pillar of support of, this this core of truth that holds all Christians together, it's the basis of all true Christian unity? Well, I call it the super seven and the terrific two rooted in the one and only Lord Jesus Christ. Let's walk through that. Here's what I believe to be the seven AIM, absolute, irreducible, minimum truths of Christianity that transcend denominations, okay? 
Number one, and let's just walk through them, okay? Who God is, generally. Who Jesus is, specifically. Who human beings are, spiritually. That's the first three. What Jesus did for our salvation, what we must do to access that, what Jesus will do to end history on God's terms, and what the Bible is. Seven's the perfect number, unless you like 16, which is my personal favorite number, so 16's better. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so those are seven things, and they move in, in, in toward and away from uh, a key, the kind of the central premise, I think. Let's walk through these. Who God is? Who who is God according to the Bible? Well, God is is true, and by I don't mean truthful. That's veracity. I mean He's real. I mean God is real, and He's the source of all reality, macro, micro. Uh, God, God is true. He's real. He's triune. What does that mean? One God in three persons. Nobody would make that up. <laughs> Nobody totally understands that. Uh, he's transcendent. That means he's outside of time and space. Okay? He's not limited to time and space. He created time and space, which I have no idea. I can't reproduce this for you, Justin, in a laboratory. <laughs> yeah? Uh, so that's the three T's. He's omniscient. What does that mean? Knows absolutely everything. He's omnipotent. What does that mean? Please don't say he can do anything. That's what they taught you in Sunday school. God is omnipotent, but he can't do anything. He can't lie. He can't die. He can't stop being God. He can't make square circles. He can't make a rock so big he himself can't lift it. Those are absurdities, right? Uh, Titus says he can't lie. Omniscient, uh, omnipotence doesn't mean he can do anything. It means there's no finite limit to his power. That's what omnipotence means, okay? And once you clarify that, it makes so much sense, right? Uh, he's omniscient, knows all things, omnipotent, no finite limit to his power, omnipresent. That means he's everywhere present in time-space. He's outside of it. He's not constrained by it. He created it, but he's everywhere present in it. And not spread out like a pat of butter on a piece of toast. He's 100%. He's just as much present in your garage as he is in this building. You realize that? And he manifests himself in every believer Makes you his one of his temples of the Holy Spirit. Um, so that's true, triune, transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He's just. He's absolutely fair. He's righteous. He's morally. In, 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 he's inherently morally perfect. He's sovereign. He has a plan. He likes the plan. It's his idea. Did not consult me on his plan. It all works together consistent with his righteousness and his justice and his love. But it's not up for grabs. And uh, sometimes you just have to trust him. Sometimes you can't figure out what he's doing. I think once we get on the other side, we'll be able to see more clearly. I don't think James may become omniscient on the other side. I don't think you will. I don't think I will. I think we'll spend all eternity learning more about God because he's infinite. Right? He's love. He's immutable. Doesn't change in his character. He's veracity. Everything he affirms in scripture and in science, right? In special revelation, general revelation is true and goes back to him. And he's eternal from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. A couple of uh, charts and graphs, because some of us love those things. This is a real simple definition of the Trinity. In the being of the one true God, there are three persons equal in essence in their attributes but distinct in subsistence. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Those are the attributes we just walked through, right? Now, 
This goes back to the late second century, early third century. Uh, it's not perfect, but it's a whale of a good way to try to put the Trinity on two dimensions, right? Father, the Father is God, full deity with all the attributes of deity, but he's not the Son nor the Holy Spirit. He's a different person, mind, will, emotion. The Son is full deity, and the Father are one. The Word was with God. The Word was with God the Father. The Word was God himself, right? But Jesus isn't the Holy Spirit, and he's not the Father. He's a different person. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. You can't grieve electricity, right? It, you know, when you step on those electrical cords, you're not grieving electricity, you know? It doesn't care, you know? Holy Spirit can be grieved by believers' sins, Ephesians. Uh, full deity, but he's not the Father nor uh, the Son. And when we talk about who God is, what's the second one? Who Jesus is specifically? Jesus is the God-man Savior. Uh, we dare to believe as an essential of the Christian faith that transcends countries, colors, and cultures and denominations that the second person of Trinity took on humanity without ceasing to be deity by the virgin conception, nine months later, virgin birth, and it's the God-man on the cross says that he can die as man's representative but have an infinite value for the work, and then he was risen from the dead. So, that's my diagram for the uh, person of Christ. The, the rectangle represents how many persons? Two natures, right? So who God is, he's Turjlev. You know that T-T-T-O-O-J-R-S-L-I-V-E thing? Uh, who Jesus is, he's the God-man Savior. Uh, we're working from here up and then back down, right? Who we are, you know who we are? We're all GIs, whether you're in the military or not. Now, I was in Army ROTC for a year at University of Houston. We had zero terrorist attacks that year. You're welcome. I did my part. Um, uh, but we're all GIs, government issue. Guilty before God with a total inability to save ourselves. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not something you're doing for God. He doesn't need Billy Graham. He certainly doesn't need Brad McCoy. But he wants us, he calls us, and he can actually use us. Now, at the top of the pyramid, so to speak, is what Christ has done. And I'm thinking about perfect righteous life, SAS, substitutionary atoning sacrifice. He's the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, those of the whole world, according to 1 John 2.2. LBSR, Ginny, what does that stand for? Literal, bodily, supernatural, resurrection, okay? That differentiates Christianity from everybody else. Nobody else has grace. We study the religions, <laughs> you know, and it, you know the, the contrasts are striking. Grace isn't in the other religions, and you don't have Jesus, the true Jesus, in the other religions with the SAS, a literal bodily supernatural resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life kind of thing. Died once for all, and... The way I like to put it is because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And at the end of the crucifixion, he says, it is finished, three words in English, one word in the original Greek, John 19.30, tetelestai means paid in full. It was found in bills of sale in the ancient world after you bought a guy's donkey. They'd write tetelestai after you fulfilled your time in jail. They put tetelestai paid in full. That's what he's shouting when he says, it's finished. It's mission accomplished. Now, a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven, Lendl, but the resurrected one can, and he's the only one who can. And so I always like to say, 
because Christ died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. But he's not dead anymore, you know, right? Joseph Arimathea gave him that free half a million dollar tomb. Uh, the day after the death of Christ, one of his friends said, Joseph, I can't believe you gave that penniless, you know, heretical Jewish preacher that half a million dollar tomb. And Joseph said, no big deal. He's only going to use it for three days. Thank you. They've only heard that a hundred times, okay? Who God is generally, who Christ is specifically, who we are, we're all GIs, guilty with an inability. What Christ did, died for our sins as our substitute. He's doing the work we could not do for ourselves. And he validates the saving power, the life after death power of his work by being resurrected himself. If he's dead, he's not going to be able to resurrect anybody else. What's the next... uh, What's the next basic? Since I've forgotten it, I guess I need to look here. What human beings must do, for by grace, God's doing the stuff here, for by grace are you saved through faith. Faith is active, receptive, trust. Calvin said it's the empty hand that receives the merits of the Savior. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I love Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Here's the problem about salvation. You have to recognize you're ungodly. And we live in a culture where we give people awards for showing up, participation trophies. You don't have to do anything. Just show up and we'll give you a trophy, you know, and pat you on the head and tell you how great you are. And people grow up and they realize, I didn't really deserve that. <laughs> you can't fool a three-year-old or five-year-old. You can probably fool a three-year-old. Whenever Cooper and Peter are here, we come up here on Saturdays and, and work at the church, which means they stack up the songbooks, and after they go home, I put the songbooks back. They work at the church, and I've got some old running medals, and the first time they did that, I put I got the medals, put them on them, and they were so happy with those medals. Man, they thought they were Olympic gold medals or something. But, uh, yeah, but to the one who does not work, Romans 4, 5, you're not working for it, but who believes on him who justifies the ungodly, you recognize your guilt and inability and throw yourself on the mercy of the Savior in faith. Uh, his faith, the ungodly person's faith, is reckoned as righteousness. Our sins imputed to Christ and judged on the cross, his righteousness imputed to us when we trust him for it. Um, what Christ will do, what's Christ going to do relative to the end of history? Well, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the last part of the book of Revelation. I gave you this complicated chart which kind of breaks down the whole book of Revelation. And this is my convictions of all the basic details of Bible prophecy. But you know what? That's not the essential of the Christian faith. The essential of Christian faith isn't what's called premillennialism, where you believe Jesus is going to come back before a literal millennium. That's where I am. That's where many of you are. Some of you may be postmillennial, thinking the gospel is going to penetrate the whole world and bring in a Christianized world, and then Jesus comes back after a era of Christian uh, worldwide impact. And some of you may be amillennial. I mean, John Wesley on the Arminian side, John Calvin, John, Martin Luther, they were all amillennial. Uh, nope. I wonder if they found out their diagram was wrong. But uh, it's different. They believe the church age uh, is all the millennium you're going to get because the Jews blew it. And they might be right, but I don't think they are myself. I'm going to preach my conviction. But watch this. Despite the three basic schools, we're all saying exactly the same thing on the essential. We're talking about the essentials here. We're talking about the faith that transcends denominations. 
Okay? The essential is a literal second advent. The same Jesus who left the Mount of Olives is going to come right back, literally, visibly, undeniably, and in history on God's terms. That's the essential. Uh, you can argue about the debates or the details. That's the essential. And then what the Bible is, uh, it's the Word of God written. So that's the that's the faith. Uh, that's the essentials of the doctrinal content of Christianity. Who God is, Christ is, we are, what Christ has done, what we must do to access that, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, what Christ will do, literal second advent. If you want to really be exact, you, you need to have my chart tattooed to your, if you have any room left on your body, tattoo my chart on your forearm. James has got, to tell a style, you got room for the chart, and if you want it. And then uh, what the Bible is, word of God written. Uh, we're not teaching people magazine up here, people. We're not going to teach Oprah's book club selection. We're not going to teach the Reader's Digest. And it's not all bad. Last time I read the Reader's Digest, I found stuff that was so corny, so corny, I didn't even want to use it. That's how bad that was. But this is, this essential, these essential truth claims are what historically have been at the core of all the major denominations, there are people so far to the left they deny this stuff. So far to the right, they think they've got an exclusive franchise on salvation. You got to do jump through their hopes to be saved. But historically, these groups have agreed on that essential content as far as doctrine. Now let's talk about the essentials of the faith in regard to behavior or duty. I call this the terrific two rooted in the only one, loving God and loving others as we abide in Christ. Jesus was asked specifically, what's the upshot of the Bible? Remember? And he says, love the Lord your God and love others as yourself. That's the ultimate expression of the faith, right? And we talked about that in great detail. Uh, to be a little bit more specific, I'd say the essential morality, the essential behavior uh, rooted in the one and only Savior and Lord we're to walk in relationship with Christ, abiding in Him, recognizing, responding to the one who saved us at a personal level. So we obey the rules out of love and devotion for the one who saved us. That's because we're reading a list of rules. You might say the Ten Commandments in a New Testament context, which means the Sabbath is not even on there as part of the ceremonial law, doesn't apply to us. But uh, it's still a good idea to avoid murder, theft, lying, things like that. That's nomic. And it's more than that, but it's all about centering your life on Christ, right? So, let's conclude, take this to heart. Uh, the essential basis for Christian unity is unity in the biblical basics of the faith. <clears throat> the, the ones we've just surveyed, the Super 7 and the Terrific 2, centered on the one and only. What are those? who God is generally, who Christ is specifically, who we are spiritually, guilty with inability, what Christ did, died for our sins, rose again, what we do, salvation by grace through faith. He's initiating, we're responding. What Christ will do, a pre-trib rapture, is that part of the essentials of the faith? No. Is a pre-trib rapture correct? I believe it is. Okay. And as we're going up, I won't say, see, John Calvin, I was right. Where's John Wesley? I was right. My diagram was better than yours. We're not, we won't think like that. And maybe I'm wrong, but i got to preach my convictions here. But here's the thing. TBF is weird, okay? Most churches, and they have rightly so, they hammer out a lot more specifics than just what we just covered here, and that's why 
Methodists are different than Presbyterians historically. They've embraced that same core stuff we've covered, but they have other distinctives, okay, that are so important to them, that's why they collect together, Phil. That's why historically Presbyterians are different than Methodists on a lot of the stuff on the fringes. And it's it's important stuff, like who's a correct uh, candidate for baptism and how you baptize them. That's pretty important, right? But it's not essential, okay? Now, so most churches deal with all those issues in the in the booklet they give you when you join or think about joining. We don't have any such booklet here. So we've had Calvinists here and Arminians here, and I'm an Amaraldian, and both sides just call me a Calminian, which is almost like a cuss word. But anyway, you know, and I preach my convictions and respect the positions, and I'll mention them. Most churches... Either a lot of churches, the ones I grew up in, didn't even teach Bible prophecy because they knew there were some pre-mills and pre- some post-mills and some on-mills, and they didn't want to get one third or two thirds of the church mad at them, so they just avoided the, the topic. But we sang the fact Jesus was coming back again all the time, but none of us knew any details because it was a hot potato. Here, I'm, as we go through Revelation, you're going to get a verse by verse approach that I think leads you directly to premillennialism. But I'm not going to even use that term beyond the first week. I'm going to say. People who've done much more for the church than I ever will, uh, Martin Luther, John Wesley, have a different diagram of the details of Bible prophecy than I do, but we all believe in a literal second advent. That's, we're going to stress that. So you can be millennial or post-millennial, but I'm not going to give you a chance to rebut from the pulpit. I'm going to acknowledge there's a different view and preach my conviction as we go through the Bible. And who knows, as we go through the Bible book by book, the pastor may occasionally refine his convictions. Wouldn't that be nice if they occasionally changed it? I heard one guy who's a very good Bible teacher said, I'm not so arrogant to think I've got a perfect theology. Long pause. On the other hand, if I knew anywhere where I was wrong, I'd change it. So basically he's convinced he's got a perfect theology. And I pretty much am too at this point in my life, just so you'll know. But uh, <laughs> I'm nice about it, right? Yeah, those are the essentials. Now, this is important. The essentials are essentials for everybody, just every Christian everywhere, because if we don't stand for something, we better stand for the faith. We'll fall for anything. Christian unity is important, but here's the thing. It's inherent. Christian unity, by definition, is inherent in regenerate believers who are biblical at any level. Tanglewood Bible Fellowship will not cause or create Christian unity in Duncan. The Southern Baptist Convention will not cause or create Christian unity in the United States and the Western world. Dallas Theological Seminary, Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary, even Campus Crusade for Christ will not cause, they cannot and will not cause Christian unity to happen because here's the thing, and I love the way this sounds. I think I made it up all by myself with the Spirit's leading this week. Born-again believers of all generations, first generation, first century, 21st century, of all denominations, I'm talking about regenerate believers of all generations, of all denominations, of all colors, countries, and cultures, have an inherent unity in Christ, precisely because of who he is and the essentials of the faith that are so clear and repeated, repeated in Scripture so often you can't miss them. The kind of things we just hit on. We have an inherent unity in Christ, and we're all part of his capital C church. So that gives us a unity. Sometimes we don't express it very consistently. Some Christians are unaware it's even there. But this thing is God-given, not man-made. TBF, I think, is a nice visible expression of that precisely because of the way we operate. 
Well, let's not get too proud of ourselves here, but I think that's kind of a nice thing. But it's not the only way to do church. And I can see how Presbyterians or Methodists hammer out second-story stuff on top of these foundations, and they're happy with them because they're convinced that you've got to be amillennial and you baptize babies and this, that, and the other. And I disagree with that, but I respect the position. It's not heretical. It's different. And in my opinion, they're wrong. But I, I, you know, I'm just saying that in a nice way, right? So, yeah. Barna Research says most Americans who go to evangelical Christian or evangelical churches are basically clueless about the essentials because you don't stress them because it doesn't draw a crowd. Uh, and they are embracing a TMD, remember that? We talked about that uh, six months ago. A therapeutic, moralistic deism. I want to go to church because it's going to make me feel better about myself. It's going to give me some big things not to do, not to commit adultery, not to lie and murder, and I can I can avoid those kind of things, hopefully, at least externally. And, uh, and God is my spiritual buddy, and when I really need him, I'll shoot up a prayer and give him a thing, stuff, something to do, and he's just supposed to do it for me. And that's kind of what's being pitched, even in so-called evangelical churches. Uh, so we're getting this McDonaldization of Christianity. Fast church, fast food, junk food, Bible McNuggets. And that's bad, because the culture is falling apart, and we don't have any answers. Therapeutic, uh, moralistic deism isn't going to change the culture. The gospel can uh, if God be uh, pleased to, to let that happen. Uh, this is extra important for us as TBFers to know the essentials because that's a, this is our doctrinal statement. That's all the doctrinal statement we've got, right, uh, by design. And, uh, uh, you know, when push comes to shove, if you ask any good pastor in Duncan, uh, do you agree with these essentials? They'd all say, well, of course, you know, these essentials doctrinally, well, of course we agree with that. And they, they, they're serious, they do. Do you agree in these essentials morally? Yeah, that's essentially it. But can anybody in your church kind of think through that? Probably not. We don't really get into that. Uh, Debbie and I were at a very famous Christian camp center in East Texas about 15 years ago, and there was a Christian leader there from California who was leading a, a seminar over the long weekend. It wasn't the week I think we were at Pine Cove together. It was a different week, but this guy was on staff of Chuck's, he was on Chuck Swindoll's staff in Southern California, his church, and during, toward the end of the weekend, uh, in an informal question answer thing, somebody, there's like a hundred people there, said, uh, so, uh, we've been talking about the faith, the faith, what's the essential, kind of, what's the essential truth claims of Christianity? And the guy, the expert, he's an expert, he's from more than 50 miles away, knows the vocabulary, he kind of went, well, um, uh, like he had no answer. He went blank. He didn't know what the essential. This guy is a kind of a big name. He said, "Well, you got to believe in God." Uh, next question, please. And I went, "Come on, man! You can't even think through this. Uh, it's it's shocking to me. It's like a doctor. Uh, you know, doctor, uh, uh, this 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 part of my body hurts. Are there any bones or vessels there? Um, yeah, I think there's some bones in there." I mean, I don't want that doctor. I want him to know what the bones are, you know? I mean, it, it's scary. But this guy can draw a crowd because he's a very good motivational speaker. So it's interesting. But for us as TBFers, we got to know this stuff because that's what holds us together, not whether we're all-mill, post-mill, or if you're really spiritual, pre-mill, right? But with all that said, we've got to avoid the siren call for Christian unity that waters down or denies 
the uniqueness of Christ or any aspects of the absolute essentials. You've got groups like the National Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches that go way beyond denominational distinctives to overtly rejecting major doctrine or moral teachings of Scripture, redefining whole dynamics. And, uh, you know, there's the old mock headline, the day after the rapture, see, assuming preacher rapture, the day after the rapture, the headlines all over the world say, World Council of Churches meets to uh, try to figure out what happened to all the evangelical Christians in the world, you know, because they have no clue, you know. Um, could happen. But I'm all for Christian unity, but it's inherent. It's not something we manufacture. We probably need to project it more. And groups like Link One or Gabriel's House uh, or Salvation Army in some cases, groups like that, but I'm thinking of Link One mentors, I'm thinking... Uh, of uh, Gabriel's House, groups like that, uh, allow people from different denominations that buy the essentials to actually help somebody, you know, in the love of Jesus. And I'm all for that. I'm involved in that kind of stuff. Um, and so I think, uh, but sometimes we're unaware of it or sometimes we just don't express it very well, but it's there. So we don't have to deny the faith to promote Christian unity. In fact, it's just the opposite. You're denying it. Our Lord himself says we need to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves and so to that end, i got to believe, and I, this is what I preach, and I actually believe it, local churches like this one must teach and stand for the essentials. As Spurgeon said, I'm paraphrasing him, the church is designed should be designed to feed sheep, not to entertain the goats. And we're living in a culture that's all about entertain the goats and get the dancing elephants, and if they like us, maybe they'll eventually like Jesus, and if they don't like him as the only way, well, we won't push that because we don't want to offend them, you know. Uh, we've got to embrace the essentials, not just as something we say we believe, but something we live consistently with, as opposed to embracing we've got to look cool, we've got to be politically correct, we've got to be culturally respectable. I mean, the gospel is offensive to the lost and dying world, but it's the one thing they need. <laughs> it's the thing they must hear. And so let us not uh, ever think uh, to to become more respectable or more popular, we got to deny the essentials. And I'm praying that our study of Second Peter that emphasizes the essentials will help us to, to do just that. So let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord. You have spoken in your word. You have not stuttered. And although we like to hammer out specific details of doctrine to secondary and tertiary levels, and I love it myself, um, your, your, your heart's really in the big things. The main things are plain things in Scripture. They get repeated a lot. Uh, sin is real and hell is hot and grace is available and Jesus is the Savior and Jesus will be not the suffering lamb when he comes back, but he'll be a conquering lion. And I pray that uh, we realize that we're not unique. 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal. There are a lot of churches in Duncan that embrace these essentials and add a whole lot more extra stuff too. And that's fine as long as we don't focus on the minutia to the exclusion of knowing and being convicted by and being committed to and living consistently with the essentials. And Lord, that's kind of the whole premise of a church like this one. Not that we're inherently better, but we are maybe different in that sense, and so help all of us to realize as we start this new year, this is where we are. This is what we are. This is what we must be. And you've provided for us for 42 years, and I pray you might enable us to 
Continue to do that to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.